Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, we're going to pick up in verse 11 there and study through uh, the end of the chapter. I want to welcome all those who are joining us via our live stream this morning. We're grateful uh, you've joined us in that way and also reached Church DeSoto and the venue service uh, down the hall. Uh, I, I want to invite up Brittany Jones to come share with you uh, this morning. Brittany works for Kansas Family Voice. She's their director of policy and engagement. She's a member of Lenexa Baptist Church. You have heard me already uh, talk some uh, about the value them both amendment. This is very important to us as residents here in Kansas, and I have heard many uh, describe this amendment, talk about this amendment, but I know of no one who's been better able to articulate it and what's at stake uh, than Brittany. Um, she has helped to craft this amendment. She is supporting this amendment in so many ways. She's very active right now, and we're grateful that she could come this morning and share with you. So, Brittany, you tell us more about this amendment. Thank you, Pastor Chad, and thank you, church family, for having me. Like Pastor Chad said, my name is Brittany Jones, and I work for Kansas Family Voice. Uh, we work on a variety of uh, pro-family issues, uh, but this year our most important and premier issue is the Value Them Both Amendment, uh, because it is so necessary uh, for Kansas to reverse uh, some things that have happened in our state and ensure that we can protect both mothers and babies in Kansas. Uh, so we believe uh, that... God has a heart for life, that he has a heart for mothers, babies, and families, um, and he wants to see those things protected. Uh, we see throughout the Bible uh, that the Lord uh, recognizes the unborn uh, from the very moment of conception. If you look at Psalm 139, we also look at uh, John the Baptist uh, recognizing uh, the Christ child in the womb when he was still in the womb and that reaction that we see in Luke. Uh, but we also see where the, Christ, where the Lord has cared for women in crisis and women dif in difficult situations. You look at um, Hagar in Genesis 16. She's in the desert all alone and God reveals himself as the God who sees in that instance. Um, and so we believe that there is very strong support uh, for valuing both mothers and babies throughout scripture and that every Christian uh, should get behind valuing both women and children. Um, and in Kansas, we have seen, we've had been on the front lines of the abortion issue, on the front lines of providing hope and healing to women, um, and on the front lines of helping families. Um, and we've passed over 20 uh, pro-life laws in the state of Kansas since about 1995. Um, and these are laws that have uh, led to the decrease of abortions by about 15 babies a day. So we're saving 15 lives a day in Kansas because of these laws. However, <laughs> which is the next statement, uh, we have a problem in Kansas. Uh, we have a Supreme Court ruling that has made every one of these laws almost unenforceable. Um, they have said that there is a fundamental right to abortion in the section of our Constitution that protects our life, our liberty, and our pursuit of happiness. Now, I don't under, I'm a lawyer. I don't know how they made that happen. It doesn't make any sense. Um, but this law has allowed, uh, this case has allowed for unlimited, unregulated abortion in the state of Kansas. And we have already seen a 9.1% increase in abortions in Kansas because of this ruling. That is 626 more babies that were aborted in Kansas in one year than the year before. That's 626 more mothers, more fathers, more families, more generations that are impacted by the scourge of abortion. Um, and so we 
believe that that is not right. We believe the people of God should recognize that this is a great immoral uh, evil and that this needs to be corrected. So that's what the value them both amendment is all about. It is the only legal solution for what the court has done. It's a constitutional amendment that will be on your ballot on August 2nd and it reverses that Supreme Court ruling and allows the people of Kansas uh, through their elected officials, which some are in the room today, uh, to actually place common sense regulations on abortion. Things like informed consent to ensure that a woman uh, knows the basics about what uh, could potentially happen to her in abortion or even how far along she is in her pregnancy. Um, it also uh, would protect our parental notification laws uh, that ensure that a minor girl is not left alone to make this decision on her own. Um, and so we believe this is a very important issue. We believe that this is an issue uh, that ha should have moral urgency uh, for the people of Kansas as well as for Lenexa Baptist. Uh, so I would urge you to uh, do your research. Uh, look, you can go to valuethemboth.com to get more information. You can talk to me. I'm here every Sunday in the 930 service, uh, but I'm typically in the nursery during the service, so you can come find me in the nursery. I'd be happy to talk to you guys uh, about this amendment, and I urge you to vote yes on August 2nd to defend mothers and babies. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. Um, this is a, an incredibly critical issue. This is not a political issue. It's a biblical issue. It's a moral issue. And uh, my fear is that uh, Kansas would become a safe haven for abortion. Um, I do not believe that uh, this would be an issue if Kansans really understood what this amendment was. But you know we have opposition. They're going to seek to deceive. Uh, in the midst of all this, we want you to be very much informed. We ask you to help us get the word out. And I think it's time that we, as the people of God in the state of Kansas, stood up together in one united voice and said, not on our watch. Not happening. You know what? I, I think a good time for us to pray. Ryan, can you come pray for us? Ryan's going to come up here. Ryan, let's grab this mic. Guys, can we make this mic hot here? This is my good friend, Ryan. He comes up on Tuesdays and and uh, works up here, and then he has a chance to pray with me, and he's an incredible prayer, prayer warrior. And so I asked Ryan this morning if he would come and pray for our service together. So Ryan, you pray for us. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be together today and as your people. And even as we consider this amendment, we know your word has spoken very clearly that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You knit us together in our mother's womb. You knew us before the foundation of the world. You knew the days that were ordained for us when as yet there was not one of them. You are sovereign over life. And we pray that we as your people would take advantage of this great responsibility and privilege that's given to us to vote and to speak for those who can't speak, for the, for the unborn to stand up and to be their voice. Lord, help us to be your people and to represent you well. Bless us now as we study your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. Great job, buddy. Thank you.
Revelation 19, verses 1 through uh, verse 11. These verses represent the end of human history. Uh, That history is not just cyclical. It's not just winter, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall. It's not just one thing after another. The history is headed somewhere. History has a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. History has an end that they shall reign forever and ever. In verses 1 through 10, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we saw the preparation for Christ's coming, uh, that the Lord our God reigns. Heaven rejoices. Heaven is not ashamed of the judgment of God. Heaven rejoices in the impending uh, judgment of God. And now we see, here he is, Christ coming. It's the, the culmination of God's plan that his people have been waiting on since the very beginning. Uh, We saw this as we studied creation. We had the creation and then the fall of man in Genesis 3. And right after the fall of man, God gives the promise of salvation that I will send someone, uh, not just to free my people from the bondage of sin and slavery and death, but to defeat the enemy, to ultimately and finally put down Satan. Uh, So we've seen this ever since uh, Genesis 3.15. The world, God's people have been waiting through the flood, through the Tower of Babel and the spreading out of nations and false religions all over the, the earth and then the choosing of this special nation, the people of Israel, the people through whom uh, the Redeemer would come and then the exodus from uh, bondage in Egypt and the giving of the law showing his people how to live and pointing them to their need of a savior And then you'll remember ultimately we saw Israel's rejection of God. And then in the Gospels, the coming of Christ to die and the cross, the wisdom of God using the cross as his means of salvation and the offering of that salvation to Israel. And then the Gospel goes to the nations And we see and have seen the rebellion of the world. And the next event that we're waiting upon is the rapture of the church, the snatching of God's people. And then as we've been studying in Revelation, the tribulation, the the judgment of God with the seals and and the trumpets and the bowls. It's described as birth pains. These, These judgments intensify as we move through Revelation, getting more intense and more intense, anticipating the coming forth of life with Jesus Christ. And through it all, we see the thread of redemption. That man rebels, God is patient. Man rebels, God is patient. Man rebels, God is patient, but right here, God is patient no more. Revelation 19, we've seen up to this point that God has given John little little glimpses into heaven, little pictures, but now the doors of heaven fling open and God dramatically intervenes in human history to put down rebellion. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah's cry in Isaiah 64 when he said, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Here it is. The heavens have been rent. The patience of God has been spent. And Christ comes. Have you ever been guilty as I have of saying, I'll occasionally look at faith and say, what is this world coming to? Folks, this right here, Revelate, this, this is what the world is coming to. Let me pray for us. We'll work our way through it. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks so powerfully to us, not just about what you have done and not just what you are doing, but what you will do. I pray that we would see you this morning as the conquering king, the Messiah who puts down his enemies. 
and rewards the faithful. God, speak to us by means of your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Look at verse 11, it says there, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Heaven's opened, and we immediately see a white horse. Often, uh, Roman generals, after a victory, they'd kind of do a little victory lap on a, on a white horse. It's interesting here, Christ rides on a white horse as a symbol of his victory, but he does so before the battle even begins. It's a picture that his victory is certain. It says here, he who sat on it is called faithful and true. If there's ever any doubt about the, the identity of the horse and the rider, this phrase really settles the issue because we remember in Revelation chapter one that Christ is the one who is called faithful and true. This is the Messiah. And what does the Messiah come to do? Very plainly here, he comes to judge and wage war. There's powerful imagery here that this is not the, the Messiah who comes as a, a baby in a manger. This is not the Messiah who comes as a lamb to die. This is not the Messiah who was crushed for our iniquities that we talked about last weekend. No, this is the Messiah who has watched as his people have been maligned and mistreated. They've been beaten and killed, persecuted and left for dead. And he has finally had enough. Christ comes with righteous justice. In a world filled with injustice, Christ comes with righteous justice, meaning his justice is fitting, it's proper, it's right, it's justified. The horrible slaughter that we'll see depicted in this chapter will be completely just. It will be reflection of the absolute truth of man's sinfulness and rebellion. And Jesus here in this chapter is presented before us as as a conquering king. He's presented as a conquering warrior. And this is often not the, the Jesus that we like uh, to think about. We have lots of pictures of Jesus on a cross, some of which we see in, in our homes, in various places. Oftentimes at Christmas, we'll have nativities in our homes that will picture Jesus in, in a manger. But I, I'm pretty sure there's not a lot of pictures out there of Jesus riding on a white horse and wading through the blood of his enemies. But listen to me, where sin exists, there is a need for both the Jesus who dies on Calvary and the Jesus who wages war at Armageddon. The meekness of Calvary and the sternness of Armageddon may seem inconsistent, but wherever sin exists, these two qualities must both be found. Think of it this way, could you live in a world where Hitler exists and Jesus does nothing about it? Could you live in a world where Christians are persecuted and killed and beheaded and Jesus does nothing about it? This passage is here to remind us that there, there is a day marked out on God's calendar when Jesus will do something about it. And look with me at verse 12. It says, his eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. His eyes like a flame of fire. We've seen this before, meaning Christ sees everything. Christ knows everything. He sees into the heart of man, and no one escapes his vision. 
on his head is diadems, many diadems, demonstrating his, his power, his authority, his position, that he is the king of kings and the, the Lord of lords. He has all authority and all power. And note here it says that he has a name that no one knows but himself. That no one knows but himself. It's interesting how much the commentators will write about this name that no one knows but himself. Um, I'm dumb enough to just take Jesus at his word. If he says no one knows it but himself, no one knows it but himself. Um, but I take this to mean that just as Paul wrote to the Philippians, that he has a name above every name. That he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and God exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You don't need to know the name. You just need to know that name demonstrates that he alone is God, and all authority has been given to him. Therefore, he has the right to judge Look at verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name was called the Word of God. A robe dipped in blood. Make no mistake about it, that is not his own blood. We saw last week as we remembered on Good Friday the crucifixion of Jesus and his body covered in blood. Here he has a robe dipped in blood but it's not his own blood, it's the, the blood of his enemies and the warning is very simple. Jesus is saying, if you will not be covered in my blood, I will be covered in yours. There's one of two options. You either trust in Jesus Christ as a, as a propitiation for your sin. Propitiation meaning that his, his blood propitiates the wrath of God that Israel and the temple, they, the holy of holies on the ark of God, those cherubim, but on the top was what is known as the mercy seat. And the, uh, the priest, the high priest would go in there once a year and he'd take the blood of an unblemished lamb and he'd sprinkle it on top of that ark. Inside the ark was the law of God. The law of God was constantly testifying before God of the sinfulness of man. But they'd sprinkle the blood of that unblemished lamb so that now as God looked down on his violated law and said he would see the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our mercy seat. Through his shed blood, God no longer looks down on us through the lens of our sin and his broken law, but he looks at us through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and we're safe and secure. But listen, if you will not trust in Jesus and be covered in his blood, one day he will be covered in yours. You know, most people, they don't like to think about this Jesus. Most people would prefer to think about the Jesus in the manger or the Jesus who's gentle and kind and says, suffer the little children, come unto me. Or the Jesus who hangs on the cross for your sins and mine. And all of those pictures of Jesus, make no mistake, those pictures of Jesus are true. But listen to me today. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a priest. He's not just a lamb who dies. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a kind and gentle man. He is the warrior king with eyes like flames of fire and reigns in truth and judges in righteousness. Look at verse 14, and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. The armies which are in heaven, we know that to be us. That's the bride of Christ. We saw that in verse eight uh, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. The bride of Christ, the 
Church, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. We, we ride behind Christ on white horses. People often ask, are we going to see the second coming of Christ? We will be part of the second coming of Christ. I hope you like horses because you're going to ride one. And we will ride behind Christ as he conquers his enemies. Notice something, though. The robe of Jesus is dipped in blood, the blood of his enemies. But look here, our clothes, they're bright and clean. If a football player ends the game and he has no stains on his jersey, what does that mean? I say he's either Tom Brady or he didn't play. Tom Brady never gets knocked down. How is that? Why can't we get that line for Patrick Mahomes? It bothers me. Our clothes are bright and clean. This to me was the most glorious part of this passage. That when it comes to the final battle of God against his enemies and against ours, he fights and we watch. It's a reminder to all of us today that salvation is totally and completely a work of God. When it came to my spiritual salvation, I didn't fight for my spiritual salvation. I rested in Christ who fought for me on Calvary. I rested his completed work and his victory becomes mine. I didn't fight for my spiritual salvation nor will I fight for my physical salvation. I will rest in Christ who will defeat our enemies and his victory becomes ours. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. As one person has said, I did not help the lamb when he died. I will not help the lion when he roars. We have a great and glorious warrior king who fights our battles for us. And note also that all of this comes within the context of a bridegroom and bride relationship. We're the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom. And just like any good bridegroom, he fights the battles for the bride. Beautiful picture here. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. In one, one verse, this is so beautiful, God combines three prophecies from the Old Testament. The first is Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, we'll look at it more fully in a moment, but it says that he'll break them with a rod of iron. Here it says that he'll rule them with a rod of iron. This is interesting because that word rule in the Greek, it's poemo. It means to shepherd. That Jesus is the, the good shepherd and his rod is the, the shepherd's staff. But notice here, it's a, it's a staff of iron meaning that this is not the staff that's made for leading sheep. This is the rod that beats the wolves. That Jesus is a good shepherd, and a really good shepherd not only leads the sheep, but a really good shepherd is not afraid to beat some wolves. 
This is the picture of the ultimate good shepherd who defends and protects his children and beats their enemies. And also in this picture, I believe that there's a fulfillment of the prophecy that we looked at uh, a while back in Genesis, Genesis 49, when the prophecy was made concerning Judah that the scepter will not depart from Judah. Here is Christ, the promised one, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he has his scepter and he will reign eternally. Then it says he'll, he treads the winepress. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 63, at which we had time to go look at Isaiah 63 and 64 and how those prophecies are beautifully fulfilled here. But the picture of a wine press where, where people would, uh, they would crush the grapes, uh, they'd get into a vat of grapes, they'd pull up their robe and they would begin to crush those grapes and the juice from the grapes would flow down into to lower vats and the, the, the juice of those grapes would flow, and then the, the person who was stomping the grapes, their robe would be stained with the juice of the grapes. Well, here, Christ crushes his enemies, and their blood flows like wine into vats. You know what I say? To those who desire to persecute Christians, you better get your licks in today. Because one day he'll return to avenge the blood of the saints. Then we see in verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Like the robe of God described in Isaiah 6 that demonstrated God's glorious position and authority. Here, this robe of Christ demonstrates his glorious claim to be king. Name, King of kings and Lord of lords, meaning all other lords and other, all other kings, all other powers, all other authorities, they're usurpers. Christ is the ultimate king and all of his enemies are vanquished in this massive human slaughter. Look at verse 17 through 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midhead in heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Here we see a supper, a meal. You remember that we talked about for the bride of Christ, we will enjoy the marriage supper of the lamb. Here we see another feast. All the armies of the world have gathered in this valley against Christ. Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage and the Peoples devise a vain thing. All the armies of the world have gathered here in this valley of Megiddo in a vain attempt to stop the ultimate reign of Christ. Christ destroys them with the word of his mouth. There's a lot of conjecture over whether or not this is an extended battle or a very short one. I tend to believe the latter that this is a very short battle, that Christ destroys his enemies by the word of his mouth, just as God's power was demonstrated in creation when he spoke and it came to existence. Here, Christ speaks and his armies are slaughtered and the birds of the air gather for a feast upon human flesh. Look at verse 20, and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the 
signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed and with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. You know, when we talk about heaven, we talk about it being a family reunion. I don't know about you, but I look forward to that. Reunited with brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before me. One day, uh, I'm gonna do Pastor Bill's funeral probably. (laughs) He might do mine, I'll give him that. I'll tell you what, I'm gonna do a good one, Bill. I wish wish you could be there to hear it, but uh, it would be a good deal, but. But you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna talk about Pastor Bill being in heaven. Because he confessed Christ, he lived Christ. His life demonstrated it. And we're gonna be here, we're gonna be a little jealous, aren't we? We go to funerals, I was at one yesterday. You start to think about glory and the reunion of heaven and you get a little jealous. One day there's gonna be that glorious reunion in heaven. But this verse reminds us that hell will also be a family reunion. The beast and the false prophet, these two members of the unholy trinity are cast into the lake of fire along with all those who have rebelled, all those who have mocked the glory and the authority of Christ, all those who have said we don't want God and we don't want Jesus telling us what to do. We wanna do whatever we wanna do. Guess what? They follow their leader, the first rebel, Satan, into the lake of fire. Meaning they didn't want God, they didn't want Jesus. And so they will go to a place where there will never be anything of God to ever bother them again. It's so interesting to me, so many people, they don't want God, but they want his blessings. They don't want God, but they want to enjoy the blessing of the air they breathe. They want to enjoy the the food that that he provides, those three squares a day. They, They want to enjoy the beauty of the Rocky Mountains, the Smoky Mountains. They want to enjoy the beauty of marriage and the beauty of children, but they will not acknowledge God. They will not give thanks. And the fact of the matter is, who gave them all those things? God did. And their rebellion, their rejection of God and his son Jesus will lead them to an eternal lake of fire and a family reunion with all those who have rejected Christ. And we come to this weighty passage and the question is, what do you do with this? I want you to look with me at Psalm 2. I mention Psalm 2 a lot It's one of my favorite psalms. And I believe the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2 is Revelation 19, 11 through 21. But the psalmist really gives us our response to this in the latter portion, but I want us to look at all of it. Psalm 2, look in verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar? 
and the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Uh, that Lord there is the covenantal name of God. It's Yahweh. Against the Lord, Yahweh, God, and his anointed. That word anointed is Mashiach. It's Messiah. It's Jesus. The mantra of the world is we don't want God and we certainly don't want Jesus telling us what to do. Isn't that the mantra of our world today? We want to do whatever we want to do and we're not accountable to anybody and nobody can tell us what to do. That's the mantra of the world. It's been that way since the fall of man and the rejection of God in the Garden of Eden in, in Adam and Eve. We don't want God. So they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And the response of God is in verse four. Is God worried about this? Oh no, they don't want me. God says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Only one of two occasions in, which, in Scripture in which God laughs, and both of them coming within the context of the world, saying, we don't want God. And listen to what he says. Then he'll speak to them in his fury, and he'll terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God says, I don't really care what you want or don't want. I have established Christ as king. You know the one article of furniture you wouldn't find in the temple? A suggestion box. God's not taking an opinion, Paul, and Jesus isn't running for savior. God has declared, that is the way you can be when you're God. And God says, you come this way. The only way in which my wrath and my justice is appeased and paid for. You come through Christ. I've declared him. He's king. And then Christ speaks. Verse 7, I'll surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you're my son today. I have begotten you. That's a coronation formula. When a king would... Um, Look at his son and say, you're the rightful heir. And he would delegate to him the authority and say, you're king. Here, Christ is designated by God as king. Not a coup. Not usurping authority. The rightful king. And he says, ask of me. And I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And you shall shatter them like earthenware. That is Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Christ was told, you say the word and the nations are yours. And Christ in Revelation 5, he takes the scroll, he breaks the seals, judgment comes forth and God pours out his wrath. And ultimately Christ comes and puts down his enemies. What do we do? The psalmist tells us, look in verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun. That word homage, a lot of your translations might say kiss the sun. A king would have a signet ring. And in a demonstration of your loyalty and submission to his authority, you would bend the knee and you would kiss his ring. 
Here the picture is in light of his impending judgment, in light of his authority and his power. Designated by God as king, the only logical response is bend your knee in submission and humility. Kiss the son. Do homage to the son so that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Two applications. The first to anybody that might be here today or watching online and you don't know Christ. My encouragement to you is look to Jesus. The good news is he is God. The good news is he humbled himself incarnated himself into humanity. We celebrated at Christmas. The incarnation of Christ. The landed invasion of God on earth. D-Day. And Christ comes on a rescue mission for us. He came to seek and to save the lost. He lives a perfect and sinless life. Perfectly obedient to the Father, God speaks on two occasions, says, this is my beloved Son, and who am I? I'm well pleased, so that when he goes to that cross, he fulfills all righteousness. He goes with an innate righteousness because he's God, and he's perfect, but he also goes with an earned righteousness because he lived this life in the same power as you and me, always saying no to sin and yes to God, and therefore, he alone. He's the way to God because he's in keeping with the truth of God, and therefore, he alone is the bestower of life. He is the lamb who came to die in your place for your sins to make a way to God so that now the only act that remains to be done is to believe in Jesus. Today, you can have your eternal destination secured. You can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son based on no work of your own apart from believing in Jesus Christ. The Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved The Bible says in Romans 10, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast. Christ has done all the work. Some of you are thinking, I'm not good enough. You're right. And God knew it too. That's why Christ came. I challenge you today. I encourage you. If God is moving in your heart to reveal Christ as your Savior and to reveal the depth of your own sin, trust in Jesus. But we also don't want to mislead you. We don't want to pull the old bait and switch here at Lenexa Baptist Church. We want you to be fully aware That Jesus is the lamb who dies. But also be warned today. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the warrior Messiah. And one day he is coming back. And those who have rejected him. He will put down their rebellion. And they will find themselves in an eternal lake of fire. Following their leader. The first rebel. Satan himself. Trust Jesus. Bend the knee today. Do homage to the Son. You'll either bow today willingly and know his salvation or you'll bow forcibly at his return. Know his his salvation. Know his freedom. And by the way, he's a glorious king. 
Submitting to him will be the best decision you've ever made in your life because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. If you're here this morning, though, and you know Christ, what's the message for you? Well, the message for those of us that do know Christ is very simple. If Jesus is our king, then we have nothing else to fear. Amen? If Christ be for us, who can be against us? There's so much uncertainty in our world today, so much fear and anxiety. But listen, if this Jesus, this warrior king, if he's our king, then nothing on this earth should shake us. We live in a world today, I understand, there's so much uncertainty about the future. What's going to happen? There's fear, there's anxiety, but for those of us that have bent the knee to Jesus Christ, we have the kind of an expectation that we know how the story ends. We've read the end of the book. We know that Christ Jesus wins. And therefore, knowing this, knowing who is our king, knowing what he's going to do, we know we win. We don't grow anxious. Nothing shakes us. In a world that's losing their heads, we don't lose ours. Listen, I'm not saying that that Satan's not against us. The point is, even though Satan's against us, what does it matter? Because God is for us. I'm not saying that Satan isn't strong. I'm telling you today, Jesus is far stronger. That's the good news of Revelation 19. We have nothing to fear. We fear only Christ. And we trust nothing but him. In 1527, in the midst of the Reformation in Germany, Luther had nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. He had challenged the authority of the Pope And he had even been excommunicated at the Diet of Worms in 1521. Death was a a very real possibility for Luther. Beyond all this, he suffered from many physical illnesses. He battled depression. If all this were not enough, the Black Plague reemerged in Germany. When this plague came to Wittenberg, many fled. They left Luther stayed behind in Wittenberg to care for the sick. His son contracted the plague, but later got better. His wife was exposed during her pregnancy, and her weakened condition led to the death of their five-month-old daughter, Elizabeth. In the midst of all of this, it is believed that Luther wrote no less than 36 hymns. Isn't that good? His most famous is based on Psalm 46. I want you just to listen to the words this morning. I thought about singing it. It's a tough song to sing, quite honestly. But the words are oh so powerful. Listen to the words that Luther wrote as an encouragement to us in our day. A mighty fortress is our God a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side. 
the man of God's own choosing, does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sideth. Let good and kindred go. This mortal life also the body they may kill. His truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks so powerfully to us about Christ who is our Messiah. And God, again, I, I pray for any that might be here today that have never trusted in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. God, I pray that you would move within their heart to convict them of sin and point them to their Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we know that salvation is your work, which is why we plead with you to work with, within men and women's hearts just as you worked in ours. God, all of us could give testimony today of how when we weren't necessarily looking for you, you came looking for us. You intervened in dramatic ways to show us the depth of our sin and show us the beauty of the salvation that you had provided in Christ and we ran to you. God, I pray that there would be some people today that are drawn to you and they would run. Run to Christ, know his salvation, know his freedom, know his forgiveness, know the certainty of heaven. They would rest in his completed work and know that his victory is theirs through faith. And God, through those, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would not be shaken today. We live in a world of uncertainty and fear, anxiety all around us. But I pray that we would be a people of confident hope and expectation, not in ourselves, but in Christ who has already defeated Satan and one day will fully and finally put him down. Help us to be your hands and feet. Help us to live and serve and to boldly speak of Christ and to do so with a heart filled with hope and joy, trusting in our Messiah. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.